I'm Carl Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And uh, this week we're beginning a two-part series on uh, The People's Republic of Walmart, um, a book that was published uh, in March of 2019, so this year, uh, pretty recent stuff by our, by our uh, standards, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's written by Lee Phillips and Michael Rosarski. Um, it's a real good fucking book, though. Ooh, real good. <laughs> yeah, I, super impressive. Just, just. I mean, it's been on a lot of podcasts. Like, they've been around promoting the book and that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, if you want to go listen to them talk about the book, uh, you can certainly do that. But um, I think that actually taking a look at the text... Um, is worthwhile because there's a lot of really good information here. Um, summaries of all kinds of different subjects related to planning uh, in a very, very readable format. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, um, this, this is very, very good. It's, um, it's kind of suspicious because like, it, it's almost like the book was 3d printed for us. <laughs> like it's just, this is, this has yeah, such well, resonance I mean, with what we've been covering on the show. Right. Yeah. Like I, literally set out in 2011 to essentially write this book and I completely failed to do so. <laughs> so I have a lot of respect for Lee Phillips and Michael Rosorski. <laughs> but like, you know, I, I honestly like the, the thing that, that originally got me doing my doctoral research was, um, you know, I, I'd done this, this research on, on, um, on technology planning in Japan in the post-war period. But, um, honestly, I, I was reading, uh, I was, I was trying to write a paper about, uh, about Thomas Friedman, the, the New York times columnist. And, um, I was reading one of his books and he was talking about Walmart and I was like, wait a minute. Like this, this would make for a really good subject in terms of uh, talk, thinking about <laughs> socialist planning, because uh, you know they in this book they talk about how they sort of got turned on to this idea by uh, Frederick Jameson. Um, but uh, I personally got um, familiar with this idea of corporations um, as sort of a seed for planning uh, through uh, the work of uh, Ernest Mandel. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I went and I read about Walmart and I read Cockshot and Cottrell stuff and, uh, you know, I, I did some calculations of my own in terms of like, well, like how feasible would it be to actually just like use their planning methods for the number of goods that Walmart carries and all this kind of thing. Uh, but basically I just didn't have the institutional support to make this happen. Um, so I I really um, am super impressed with this book because, like, yes, it did the sort of thing that I wanted to do with my dissertation, but beyond that, it does it for a popular audience, and I think like that's even more valuable. Oh yeah, totally. Like this is this is very clear. I mean, it's it's pretty short. What's what two hundred and something pages? Um, it's it's written in a very clear manner. Uh, it and I, I think as you alluded to, it covers so much ground, right? Like um, yeah, so many interesting uh, parts of history. So many um, things that are kind of not not theorized, really, right? Like a lot of the stuff about. Um, optimization and supply chain management and stuff like that is is kind of locked up in in sort of industry uh magazines and stuff and and journals and not really not really a part of of 
socialist thinking really you know and not part of economic thinking really um but they do they weave it in with the history of economic thinking it's oh fuck this this is good stuff um strong strong recommendation it's a very good yeah. point yeah absolutely like they they um they not only bring together uh or like sort of summarize um an enormous amount of information that is only available across a disparate amount of text, right? Like there's just, in order to actually get this information without reading this book, you would have to go and read a whole bunch of different books, which I know because I did it. (laughs) (laughs) I spent four years of my life doing that. (laughs) And So um, that's I think that's very valuable in covering the academic material that has is not like kind of available concentrated in a single place outside of this book. Uh, but the other thing you pointed out that's very valuable is that it brings that academic material together with this kinds of this kind of uh, operations research and logistics literature that exists about like Amazon and Walmart and all that kind of thing, which really helps to sort of liven up and and challenge um the accepted truths within the academic literature um and i think this is really going to be a a a a stepping off point for a new stage of discussion about this topic because um yeah it's it's quite uh if you read the academic literature it's either very abstract um or it, it, it's very downbeat and pessimistic. Um, but when you read this book, like, no, they come out swinging, right? Like, they have empirical evidence to advance their claims and to really challenge the neoliberal orthodoxy about this subject in a way that is not just, like, an esoteric point of academic discussion, but is something, like, we can really think about in the world. Yeah, totally. It's uh, it's wonderful. And um, I guess before we get into the into the text, um, we we gave away two copies of this book uh, pretty recently. Um, we we did that giveaway because I'm I'm a fucking moron, and I <laughs> I was so excited by this book that I placed three separate pre-orders over the course of two years with like forgetting each of them. And uh, when launch day came. I got a big fucking crate delivered to my house with just three of these things in it. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I checked. I was like, how? Like, but that's, that's, that's how excited I was to, uh, to get this book, you know? So congratulations to the lucky listeners. Well, I, I, was talking to a, I was talking to a listener, and uh, he said that he actually did the same thing. So you're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So th- this, this has been long anticipated, for, for me at least, and for that other listener. And I think, you know... Um, it's been anticipated for a while by a lot of people and fuck yeah it, it delivers um <clears throat> anyway yeah uh ooh, in, yeah i guess in, instead we, we should probably get into the text um but for this episode we're going to be going we're going to be going up through uh, chapters one through five which is essentially the first half of the book and um the next episode will be the back half of the book as well so it opens up with this introduction and uh yeah they're, they're talking about about walmart right but like it's it's about the logistical marvel that is walmart not about the thing itself and they're not defending the company it's because it's a fucking ghastly awful company but the the sort of point here is like well you know if only this gargantuan apparatus of planning could be captured and transformed and put to work for a more egalitarian society right that'd be quite nice (laughs) i think and you know like 
this is this is the old the old planning thing, right? Like that um, planned economies and such. And uh, you know, a bit of a spoiler for later in the book, but like it turns out that Walmart, Amazon, and all these kind of companies are. You know, internally, they are planned economies larger than the Soviet Union ever was. <laughs> you know? Um, yes, that's right. That's, that's a very important point, is to point out, like, not only are these planned economies, they are larger than the biggest planned economy that everybody always talks about in discussing this subject. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And uh, and that, that particular planned economy, the Soviet Union, does occupy the sort of middle uh, middle two chapters of the book. Um, so it, it is given it is given plenty of treatment here, but this is also this married to a kind of like a, a, a positive sort of uh, vision of, of 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 a future planned economy that's not just about kind of going back and forth about the class character of the Soviet Union, which is a very boring fucking topic um, mm. that's been, been done to death by now, you know. Um, but on like up front as well, they're sort of saying like, well, why why should we care about like a socialist, why should we care about this planning and optimization stuff? And it's because it's kind of, it's it's the big positive positive alternative to just sort of marginal tinkering with with markets, right? Like to, you know, if we think in, if we think along these lines, we might be able to get ourselves out of this mode of just thinking about how best to mitigate the fucking catastrophes of the market, and instead have this this other other alternative to uh, to talk about. Yeah, like they really come out swinging both against. Um neoliberalism against social democracy and also against market socialism like they they have strong arguments to criticize um all of these different sort of uh social programs um yeah yeah they they very much do and like um I think it's maybe something we alluded to in the intro, but didn't quite quite land on. But um, there's a lot of resonance with this, and sort of a lot of the stuff we've read before, like uh, markets in the name of socialism, and it's it's sort of um, reading of of the of the whole like uh, calculation debate, and you know market socialism in Yugoslavia and all that kind of stuff. All that gets treated here as well. Um, they refer to Red Plenty, which is a, a book we read as well. Um, and again, yeah, yeah, there's a whole it's, chapter on it. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, it's almost it's almost suspect, right? Like it's kind of very resonant with what we're doing. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I just read the same things they did. <laughs> exactly. Therefore, we are covering the same things on this show that are covered in this book. <laughs> I, I take some comfort in that though, because it, it means that we're not we're not alone, right? Like we're not just the fucking weirdos. Yeah, totally. No, <laughs> yeah. like I, I, I am not even remotely jealous. I'm just happy. And yeah, totally. It's cool. Yeah. Um, but so one of the main points that's made in this intro as well is this, um, kind of distinction between usefulness and profitability, right? That the, the set of all useful things and the set of all profitable things are not in perfect correspondence, right? Um, so there are, there are plenty of things out there that are harmful, uh, like as in anti-useful, but they're profitable, right? So like fossil fuels, right? Um, and I don't know, just like shipping containers full of fidget spinners left to fucking rot in a, in a dock or whatever. It's like, yeah, it's the, the, the markets don't generally optimize for usefulness. They, they sort of do this weird molecular logic of optimizing for profitability. And, um, conversely, there's a lot of stuff that's unprofitable, but that should be produced, um, that, that is useful to, to produce, or at the very least, a lot of stuff that, um, the, de the development of, of the thing requires foregoing profits for quite a while, 
such as like the development of antibiotics and other kinds of drugs, uh, and in general other kind of long-term blue sky projects, like uh, massive infrastructure projects and so on. So yeah, I mean the, the like you know throwing throwing a fucking hand grenade into the the neoliberal camp here, right? That like no markets markets don't actually do the the right thing. <laughs> yeah, they 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 overproduce things that are. Uh, useful in a very narrow context um, and they underproduce things that are useful in a very broad context, right? So, yeah, we we overproduce, uh, you know, speaking of... <laughs> Speaking of fossil fuels, like, you know, living here, I'm now living in Alberta, which is a very much a petro state. And uh, I can see how politics are, are very much distorted by this market imperative um, combined with sort of state policies to support it um, about overproducing fossil fuels at a time when that is literally suicide for our species. Um at the same time, yeah, we have an underproduction of, um, you know, uh, new antibiotics, um, like basically all kinds of medical um, procedures or, or uh, medical technologies that could be developed and provide cures to chronic problems um, are just simply not invested in by the medical industry because that is not profit rational, right? Like, why would you ever cure a disease when you could just provide medication that would month on month get you more sales of providing, like, you know, treatment of chronic symptoms, right? Yep, which is very depressing. Um, and they, they, have, they have a citation here for the exact same, yeah, that, like... Uh, this this is this isn't just sort of this isn't like a sort of conspiratorial thing. This is literally like you go and ask the fucking um, you know drug development companies what their thinking is on this, and they're like, oh no, yeah, it doesn't make any sense to cure people. You gotta you gotta keep them on the hook um, because profit, right? That the, the the profit imperative. I mean, as we covered in um, our episode on platform capitalism, right? Like the profit imperative is this thing that conditions absolutely everything in capitalist societies. Um, and it's very bad, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, and the, the, the point they make is that it, that is true of capitalist societies, and it's also true of any market society. Mm -hmm. right? right, right. Like, that, it, it would also be true of market socialism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is the fucking nail in the coffin of that, that idea. Yeah, so we'll get into that later in the text, because there's, there's, there's a discussion about that, but it's a long way down the road. <laughs> this is a big, big text. <laughs> it is very big. And it's like, again, it's, it's, so, it's so easy to read, but there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on in here. And like the, the usual caveat of, for the show applies, like we're, we're going to be skipping details all over the place. Uh, buy the fucking book and read it. Um, I think this is, this is going to be essential ammunition for, for socialists in the, the decades to come. Um, but, uh, there's another sort of call here to like, well, you know, this, the alternative to these markets is usually planning, right? But like this, this planning stuff to us in the current moment seems very kind of musty and old, right? Like these, 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 um, these notions of like optimization and all that kind of stuff. But, um, it is a crucial, it's a crucial question for us to ask, right? If we're people who care about justice, um, like the justice of allocation, is is very is a very real thing we should be considering, right? That like, um, 
you know, in our in our society, the allocation is uh, made according to who can pay for things, um, not according to like what's actually useful or or or, uh, or productive to have. Um, and we need to think about the methods of allocation for our society, right? Um, which means, yeah, planning. Um, and the question being then that, like, well, if we want to plan things, right? Like, could the the plan the planning apparatus that's used by capitalists every day? could that be used for a more just society, right? Like, could we go from actually existing planning to a, a new world that's actually kind of based on based, based on that sort of planning and, and is emancipatory rather than the, the sort of class nightmare that we live in at the moment, <laughs> right? They also kind of, um, this is a kind of a refrain that'll come up throughout the text. They're kind of like, comparing the ideology of capitalism, right, like, and the sort of notions of ideal markets and all this kind of thing versus the kind of actualities of um, of market societies, where, you know, on the one hand, you have this, like, ideal of, like, free markets that are, like, they, they achieve spontaneous equilibrium and this sort of stuff. Um, but in actuality, like, these markets are maintained, right, like, and they're constructed. Um, there is extensive collusion between, uh, you know, market actors there's a lot of state intervention in favor of um, of capital right like that's that's actually kind of one of the the cruxes of kind of neoliberalism right like the 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 turn from sort of an idea ideology that's sort of allowed for uh, you know just you know free markets and it'll sort itself out to one where it's like no this the state has to be uh, a a thing that intervenes on behalf of markets um, yeah and engineers markets right like that that's very much what we saw come out of that uh markets in the name of socialism uh sort of history right that that you get um a shift from the kind of austrian school libertarian perspective on markets which is that you know oh we just need markets for everything because you know markets are the best allocation mechanism and they're going to create the most just society that is the thing that um that is a thing that basically a lot of sort of lefty market types and libertarians would agree on. Um, they just really disagree on how you get to those ideal markets. Um, and so um, in, in the history of neoliberalism, you get a, a shift away from that uh, Austrian school kind of perspective, what we often call the libertarian perspective, and towards this kind of engineering mentality, like you know the the nudge mentality, mm -hmm. right? Um, <laughs> right yeah. That uh, that that comes in um, of of market engineering. Mm -hmm. Yep, totally. Um, and like one one of the sort of core points here as well, and it's again refrained throughout the book, like they're 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 very thematically consistent here, is that um planning like planning is with us now, right? Like in inside firms, um like there's there's most economic activity is actually planned. It's not not really carried out on the market. But planning has always been with us, right? Like from like way back to like Mesopotamian accounting and planning through the sort of internal planning of households, uh, all throughout history. Um 
and the the sort of intertwining of um, of the history of money with the history of planning, right, as well, where in, in many sort of cases, money took on this role as a sort of like token rationing system, essentially, where, you know, a, a given token was redeemable for a given amount of, of grain output and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, this, this kind of brings up like uh, Graeber's critique of uh, that sort of story that classical political economy tells us about, you know, uh, money originated in barter, right? Uh, but that that is actually there's no historical evidence for that. That's kind of mythology. Um, it's one that you'll also you will also find in chapter one of Capital because Marx was just taking up what his contemporaries were talking about. Uh, but if you actually go back and look at the historical record, the dominance of markets in history is pretty hard to find. Um, and uh, yeah, and like you can you can find examples like you know. Yeah, Mesopotamians are mentioned here, but there's also like the Incan Empire was also a massive planned economy. Um, yeah, it, it, the the history is is much more diverse as as Graeber would kind of emphasize, I guess, uh, than uh, economists would have you believe. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but like for for all those sort of examples that we have throughout history, like. A lot of them, or like even most of them, are like uh, yeah, kind of modulo like Graeber's point about like the diversity of, of uh, human societies. Um, a lot of this stuff is like either in some sort of elite control or is is explicitly authoritarian. Um, when we get to say you know the Soviet Union and China and and companies right like firms are authoritarian fucking nightmares in, internally, um, and that we we need a new model of planning or a sort of understanding of how we could achieve a sort of like emancipated democratic society that is also planned without simply repeating the same mistakes of history again. And um, that's what the book's going to be about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's trying to bring together the actuality of massive contemporary planning systems with the ideal of socialist democracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is, um, you know, this, this is also resonant with, with a lot of stuff we've covered, right? But it's also like, I mean, if you go back to sort of uh, Marx's thing about like the dialectical thinking of like you hold, hold the bad and the good in your mind at the same time and recognize that the situation you're seeing might be the, the flourishing, the potential flourishing of a very good thing uh, that might be able to cast off its, its sort of bad shell. Yeah, and I, I, I think that the thing that most of the literature discussing this misses out on which this book brings up is more of like those existing potentials right like the things that are actually exist now that you can find that dialectical moment in which is largely ignored in in uh, a lot of the discussion of this stuff yeah which uh, which brings us on quite nicely to chapter two uh could walmart be a secret socialist plot and the answer is yeah <laughs> pretty much right um the initial touchstone here is Frederick Jameson, um, who sort of posed this question, like, in, in and around the 70s, right? Like, of, uh, yeah, kind of like, is, is, this, is this in fact, <laughs> like, a, the sort of uh, seeds of a communist future? Um, there's a really nice uh, point here, though, like, it's from Jameson that, like, um, in the latter half of the 20th century, and especially, and even now, we've kind of lost sight of any kind of utopian thinking. And um, that... 
there's potential for like spotting the seeds of the future in the present right that like those that's where the utopias might be um and yeah it's like you know he has this this essay walmart as utopia um in which he's sort of going over this thing of like yeah it's um this like walmart as an example of this kind of um this 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 uh coordination and planning might well be a blueprint for the future mm-hmm. yeah it, because you know it is a it is a transnational um planned economy that is coordinating production over the entire planet right um and that is a that is a pretty impressive uh example to look to um for socialists because you know ideally when we we think about socialism we think about a a world system right like an entire global uh socialist production system not just socialism in one country yeah which which we know doesn't work <laughs> yeah it, um, it, it does not work <laughs> you have to emphasize that point again and again but it doesn't work yeah and uh there, there's something kind of really amazing about this this realization right that like because it, it sort of hits you first as like huh that sounds like bullshit right like oh what what we're, we're gonna just like like walmart is a communist thing and then you sort of you know, pause and let your eyes drift out of focus for a minute. And it's like, Ooh, holy shit. Yeah. I can see it now. Right. Like this, this like, uh, or like Walmart and Amazon, right. This like globe spanning, uh, infrastructure of coordination and distribution. It's like, ah, oh, that's what the commies were after. That's what, that's what we wanted, you know? Um, yeah, kind of pretty, pretty mind blowing initially, but like, um, and it's, it's something that they will touch on. Cause I, I think the way we've been talking about this up until now, might suggest to people was like, well, but what about the, the 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 sort of power dynamics? What about ownership and stuff? Like, yeah, they'll they'll address this. Like, that's that is part of the book as well, right? Like, it's not just it's not just fawning admiration for the infrastructure. It's like this big question of like, how is this stuff owned and how is it controlled and how who who has input into these infrastructures? Uh, all yeah. those questions, you know. I mean, it, it's quite interesting because, like, I brought up how sort of Thomas Friedman kind of turned me on to this subject back in the day. And there is a way in which the first section of this book kind of reads like Thomas Friedman for socialists. It kind of it kind of has that, like, rhetoric to it. Um, and I was like, wow, yeah, this is, like, actually this kind of, like, um, breezy sort of like business reporting kind of uh, a tone to it, uh, which is, which, which definitely does not continue into the second half of the book where it gets more sort of historical and there, there's, there's, there's more details back there. Uh, But that opening section is, is really pretty, pretty breezy. Um, So yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It's very, very interesting how there's, there's this sort of dialectical inversion of Thomas Friedman happening here. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, like, the thing here is that, like, Walmart kills markets, right? Like, it's, it, uh, it's obviously built on the sort of axioms of capitalist market competition and all that sort of stuff, right? But... It destroys markets. It, it kills off competition, and it also rolls other firms into its own planning infrastructure. Right, that like 
the um, suppliers and vendors and, and all the folks in the supply chain are kind of like brought inside the wall uh, in such a way that it sort of melts down the bone, the boundaries between the, the firms such that they all kind of act like one massive company, really. Um, yeah, and this is a really interesting, this is a really interesting point because um, if when like later in the book, when we look at the history of the development of planning in the Soviet Union, it's kind of also how the planned economy in the Soviet Union evolved. Like it sort of rolled other firms, other sections of society into itself. Um, so there is this kind of interesting historical uh, parallel there where in the case of the Soviet Union, it was done under a situation of civil war, massive scarcity, um, and just utter desperation. Um, whereas in the case of Walmart, it was done in just sort of, you know, Midwestern America. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so <laughs> they're very instructive uh, parallel examples. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, um, yeah. And, and, and another interesting point there, if I might, is just that in both cases, the Soviet example and the Walmart example, the people in charge were not really ideologically committed to what they were doing. Like we, when, when you look at the, the, the Soviet Union's planned economy in retrospect, we kind of project the later things that were said about it uh, onto its creation. Uh, but really, um, people were very divided among the Bolsheviks about the subject of planning and how to do it. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it really, it really seems like the development of planning within Walmart was quite similar. Like it was, it was very, uh, pragmatic. Um, well, it seems that they were both conditioned by very simple imperatives, right? That like for the Soviets, it was an imperative to not, not be fucking evaporated, right? <laughs> by other forces. And for, for the Waltons, um, it, it was just simple cost cutting, you know, that got them there, uh, which is, oh, we want to cut costs. And I was like, oh, look at all this dumb inefficiency of, like, dealing with the stuff on the market. Let's let's cut costs there. Um, very simple imperatives that lead to this emergent kind of outcome. Um, and, like, ultimately, like, the, 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 the big sort of point here for Walmart is that it's proving in practice that planning beats markets. That, like, at every step of the way, when Walmart as an entity has this kind of choice to make, it always chooses to not do a market, right? Like, there's no, there's no markets inside the company. And when, when it... When it wants to deal with a vendor or whatever, it tries to absorb the vendor into itself so it doesn't have to deal with it on a market either. Um, yeah, and um, there was a point, I think, in the 90s where Walmart experimented more with internal markets, and they just dropped it like... Like a hot break. Very fast. <laughs> because, yeah, because it was like, this doesn't work at all. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it went right back to planning. Yeah. <laughs> but all of this, all this brings us on to this, this sort of um, the beginnings of um, a, a thread that will run all the way through the book about the socialist calculation debate, um, for which I'll, I'll hand over to Kyle because I think he's massively more, uh, <laughs> more knowledgeable on this. So, so what's all this about? Yeah, so um, the socialist calculation debate um, is a name given to a debate that sort of happened like in the mainly in the interwar period, so between World War One and World War Two, um, and it was a debate about the feasibility of um, a socialist economy. 
um, and primarily a planned economy. So um, the way that this got going was initially, um, or I guess, you know, that's a simple oversimplification, but we can start here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a very difficult subject to summarize, but I think it's worth starting where they start with it um, with um, Otto Neurath, right? Um, so uh, Otto Neurath was... Um, He's, he's most famous uh, these days for being a uh, philosopher. Um, you know, he's really associated with analytical philosophy. Um, but um, he was originally trained um, as an economist. Um, and he came up with this idea that um, wars... Situations of war uh, create the need for an economy in kind, which means an economy that is unmediated by money, right? Uh, essentially what we would call a planned economy. Um, and he was able to kind of experiment with his ideas. Um, it says in the book that he was a, a part of the German, war uh, German Empire's war ministry. That's actually wrong. Um, <laughs> it's the one big error I found in this book. Uh, no, it's not true. He was he was a part of uh, the war ministry for uh, for the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire in the First World War. And uh, basically, like you know, he was really bored on his job, and he, he talked to somebody in the military and was like, "Hey, I've got all these ideas about war economics," and they were like, "Hmm, okay, well, if you can." improve our logistics. That's, that seems like a good idea to me. Go, go nuts, go for it. Um, and so he was kind of able to experiment with his ideas a bit there in terms of planning, uh, the war economy. And he did go to Germany and actually like have some interactions with the Germans as well. Um, after the war, um, I think he was, he was really quite disappointed with the way things had gone. Um, like not in terms of the logistics being a problem, but more in terms of like just the lack of democracy, you know, the the ways in which like, you know, this, this war economics um, didn't really lead to a kind of democratic socialism that he had hoped for. Right. Was, this was kind of like the. The kind of harebrained aspect of Neurath, right, was this idea that, like, the war economy would lead to the socialist economy. Um, but, um, you know, after the, after, the, uh, after the First World War, you have the German Revolution, right, the, the, the kind of um, uh, failed revolution, socialist revolution in Germany um, and the Hungarian Revolution. And amidst all of this, uh, Neurath ends up in Bavaria, which was kind of a separate country within the German Empire um, and which had its own Soviet Republic for a very short period of time. Um, and Neurath like, lobbies very hard to the leadership of the revolutionary faction um, to implement his ideas for an economy in kind within the Bavarian Soviet Republic. Um, and so he actually gets put in charge of this effort. The revolution fails, 
Um, obviously, uh, it didn't go super well uh, for a number of different reasons. Uh, didn't really have too much to do with Neurath. It was more about like infighting, and uh, it was it was a mess. It was a complete mess. Um, and uh, actually, this was what uh, destroyed Neurath's career as an economist, um, because after that, he was blacklisted from ever teaching in universities again, um, because you know he's 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 tainted with this sort of commie brush. Um, but uh, it was around this time that his ideas started to kind of um, get more discussed. And uh, another uh, Austrian, uh, Mises, who people probably know way better than Neurath, um, kind of started to respond to his ideas, right, um, about an economy in kind. And so that's when the, like, the socialist calculation debate really got kicked off. You have Neurath on the one side who's arguing for an economy in kind because it's going to be more democratic um, than the market in the sense that, like, people will be able to vote on the use values, on the uses of the things they actually want, right? As opposed to just kind of engaging in this arbitrary market system. Um, and Neurath was very interested in democratic rationality throughout his entire career. Like he was really interested in like using statistics, in communicating ideas to the public, in trying to create the institutions of mass democracy. Um, and his, his economics, aside from the whole thing about war being super great, uh, basically are coherent with that, right? <laughs> uh, now, yeah. Mises, uh, Mises was, you know, sort of one of the leading lights of the Austrian school. He was by far the most extreme member of the, of the Austrian school. Um, and, uh, you know, they were both living in Vienna because after uh, Neurath left um, Bavaria, he, he was rescued basically by the Austrian Social Democrats and uh, he went on to go work in Vienna. So the two of them were both there. And and and, uh, and Mises ha was, you know, like, as, he, as he's known, he's like an extreme libertarian, right? Like, um, and so he was trying to refute Neurath's ideas about socialist planning. Um, and that's, that's really where, like, that first stage got kicked off. So... Um, what the substance of the debate was, was that Neurath was like, okay, like we're going to have this economy in kind. There will be like statistical work that will be done by a central calculation bureau. Um, and uh, basically people are going to have like de democratic deliberations about the sorts of things that our economy should produce. And central to that effort is the requirement that plans be drawn up according to some kind of mathematical calculation procedure. Because if you can't, if you can't like figure out what you need in order to produce a certain package of goods in the economy, like what you what the inputs are for all of those outputs, um, then you can't coherently make a plan without a market, right? Like, or you just can't coherently make a plan at all. Um, and so Mises attacked Neurath on this point of calculation. Um, and he basically said that, uh, well, it's just, it's just so impractical. Like, how could you possibly ever do that calculation? Right? Like that's, that's absurd. Like, you know, we, we just couldn't do that. And then, 
you know, because it's impossible, what's going to happen is that the, the, the socialist leadership is just going to start making decisions by fiat. And then it's going to become an autocracy and it'll be way worse than the market ever was. Right. Uh, that was basically Mises' argument. Um, and, you know, at, at the time, they were both sort of looking at the example of the Soviet Union in the background. Right. Is like, you know, this is this kind of thing is sort of happening in the background, but they didn't have any firsthand um, experience of it. They were just kind of like looking at it as an as an example way over there in Russia. Um, but, you know, that's why there were stakes here. Right. Um, and like on both sides of the debate, there's like this there's this like cons- there's this concern with like loss of fidelity. Right. That like uh, for Mises that like the bureaucrats would have bad data, like they wouldn't have enough data. So there would be a loss of fidelity in like the um, the information. And then on the other side, there's also a concern with that like prices lose information. Right. That, like, that there's I mean, they, they definitely do. Right. There's a huge a huge amount of stuff that's packed into one one number. Um, yes, yes. Uh, so the the point where, uh, yeah, Mises was criticizing Neurath for saying, like, the bureaucrats are not going to, you know, in our sort of cybernetics terms, like, have the requisite variety to actually deal with all of this data, right? Like, that's just not going to, It's they're not going to be able to make sense of it in any kind of useful way. They're going to lose, it's going to be a very lossy process, as you said. Um with Neurath, the, 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 the rejoinder was very much like, well, prices are, are already extremely lossy, and that is why I was engaging in this whole process in the first place, because um, Neurath was definitely not an um, authoritarian. He was very much a Democrat, and uh, he, he really cared about people's ability to express their needs and desires in society. And he saw how a price system does not allow for that kind of expression, contrary to, you know, the sort of uh, like neoliberal rhetoric that we have these days about uh, consumer sovereignty and, and consumer democracy and all that kind of thing. He wasn't having any of that. He was like, no, like actually interacting with a market is really um, a massive mutilation of people's capacity to be free, right? To have an actual freedom in society. He wanted a society where people would be able to live the kinds of lives that they wanted to live as opposed to being, you know, uh, having uh, to, to just conform to the market standard at all times without any kind of reason going into the process. Yeah, totally. Um, and like, what's kind of funny here is that like the, the whole, the whole quip is that like, Oh, you know, socialism works in theory, but not in practice. But then the fucking Walmart and Amazon and stuff prove that planning does work in practice, right? That like, um, Internally, they're they're planned economies, right? Like, <laughs> that's that's exactly right because we have. Um, so this was already considered to be um, in in most of the 20th century. This was already considered to be an open and shut case against Mises, right? Because people would just say like, well. Um, you know, you have these logical arguments from like axioms about why planned economies cannot work. But the Soviet Union has existed for decades as a planned economy. It's staring you in the face. 
how can you possibly hold up these these like you know sort of armchair speculations against a really existing planned economy, right? Um, and then it was only in with the collapse of, of the Soviet Union and um, that sort of like neoliberal resurgence in the 80s and 90s that Mises was taken seriously at all again. And so now we have a, another example to disprove him. <laughs> <laughs> Give him a good fucking kicking, right? Like when, he, when, he's, yeah. when he's down, <laughs> just keep going. Um, yeah, that's that's great. Like, um, yeah, fuck. I mean, it just it just bears repeating, right? That planning works in practice, right? Like, um, and um, I think we, we've already mentioned, but this this sort of important point about like uh, how Walmart draws suppliers into itself, right? That like um, it's very hard to get a supply contract with Walmart, but once you're in, you get brought inside the wall, and you're the supplier is. It brought into this like system of information and like communication about like plans and what's coming up, like what kind of promotions they're going to run six months from now, this sort of stuff, which is so much more high fidelity than market signals. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, Mises fucking get out of here completely, completely fucking wrong. Um, they, they do have this like wonderful section as well about this, this absolutely comical counter example of like, um, Sears, like the department store in the US, being completely it, it just destroyed itself completely by um, it got taken over by this fucking Ayn Rand asshole, like uh, who was big into this objectivist fucking market stuff, um, and created a like internal market pitting departments against each other in competition and all this kind of stuff. Completely fucking failed. Um, it was supposed to be a demonstration of this, like the effectiveness of these. Uh, fucking anarcho-capitalist uh, fucking libertarian principles crashed and burned. Um, her- horrendous. Yes, this, this is really this is a really interesting example because unlike Walmart and unlike the Soviet Union, the implementation of this organizational plan in Sears was truly ideologically motivated. Right? Like it was it was from the get- it was not in, uh, driven by any kind of pragmatism. It was driven purely by Austrian school ideology, <laughs> right? Brain poison. And the, <laughs> the implementation of their ideas uh, against all evidence and accepted practice in this, in this truly kind of... Um, you know, uh, Bioshock esque uh, <laughs> way. Fuck. Yep. Is is an open and shut case of these ideas being completely bankrupt and and not worth exploring, right? Like this, this is it's it's clear. Like it, apparently, when you know the authors went and, and talked to some of the people responsible for implementing this plan, they were just like, "Oh no." Just wait. Just wait for the market to kick in. It's it's gonna work. It's it's like <laughs> we just haven't marketed enough yet. Uh, like like you know when 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 communists are described as um, just sort of like fire breathing radicals frothing at the mouth with like a, a absurd ideologies. When you look at the the history of the USSR, that's really not how things played out. Um, that's not how things develop there. Um, but when you look at the history of Sears and why it, it died, that's exactly what happened, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> very much so. So it's a very instructive example uh, because, yeah, like as as they say in the book, 
What did it lead to? Massive inefficiencies, duplication, waste, incoherence. Um, all of the managers were at war with each other. They were trying to hide information from each other in a very similar way to people like, you know, point to with the Soviet Union for how like information was withheld from Goss plan all the time. Um, like it, 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 is, it is a perfect example of a dysfunctional organization and its death was swift and ca uh, catastrophic. <laughs> yep. And it, it actually, you know, it, it, it did destroy many people's lives, right? Like people who had no uh, connection to this planning effort at all, their lives were ruined. They were put out of work. Um, and it, it certainly damaged communities. And it, it's just an example very much worth uh, pointing out because it's like, yeah, no, this is an object case of why you should not listen to libertarians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, keep them away from you. Just block them yeah. the fuck out. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, great stuff, really. Like this, this is this is like as you said, right? Like it's kind of tragic. It's definitely tragic that like people got pretty badly hurt in this. But like it is a laugh a fucking minute. Like reading this thing, it is. I was I was in stitches, fucking laughing. Um, buy the book. Buy the book, everyone. Um, so chapter three, then Islands of Tyranny. Um, opens up with this kind of really nice uh, thought experiment from uh, Herbert Simon with, like, if the world was viewed from outer space by, like, an alien intelligence, whatever, uh, and it was looking at the kind of economics of the world, what would it see? Um, and the, the classic answer would be, oh, it, it would see these little little nodes that are connected by, you know, red string, like, market sort of interactions. But his, his case here is actually quite the opposite, that what, what it would see from above would be these big green blobs with, like, internal structure, um, that, that are firms and companies j joined together by really tiny little connections that, that represent the market. That, like, in, in, in essence, right, it's the organizations that come first and it's the, the network or the market that comes second. Um, and this is where we get introduced to this wonderful term of like islands of conscious power, right? Um, and the big sort of uh, the gist of this sort of chapter is that, yeah, I mean, these the, the companies are these like authoritarian islands of, of tyranny in in the uh, in in the market, um, where like ownership and domination are woven together to uh, to create this kind of um, authoritarian form of planning, which is uh, very much the kind of planning we don't want, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it's it's the question of exactly of like. Well, yes, there are islands of conscious power, but what is the nature of that power? And in fact, the nature of the power is not what we're particularly happy with. Yeah, and um, we get we get intro introduced to some some figures here. This uh, this guy by the name of Coase, who was also investigating this sort of stuff. Um, and what what the kind of theme as well is that like this is kind of like a dirty secret for for capital or for bourgeois kind of ideology, right? Like it's. Um, the, the 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 sort of power wielded by the bosses the um is never like the, the planning is never acknowledged right but then also the power is never really acknowledged it's all you know you you open your fucking business 101 textbook and or whatever and it's all about choice oh gosh you know wonderful choices and like but you don't have a choice at work right <laughs> um definitely not because it's planned and it's planned by somebody with this power relation over you, right? Like it's it's this uh, this sort of um, this dirty secret, right? Um, there's a wonderful, a nice little bit here as well where they, they play off like uh, you know Smith with his invisible hand of the market versus the the visible hand or fist of the of the the boss tyrant, <laughs> you know. Um, that there's there's this like there's this ideology which says that the 
the economy is orderly but unplanned, right? That, like the, the order spontaneously emerges just from market interactions. But the, the order, realistically, like going with that initial thought experiment and its image, the order is imposed by, by like as again, the fucking title of the, um, the chapter in these islands of tyranny. Um, so like all of this, all of this shit is a fucking fantasy. Like, um, and it's like, yeah. And if, if you actually go back and read like the early 19th century economists talking about, um, spontaneous market order, um, it's very clear and explicitly stated that what they are saying is that the market is something handed down to us by God. <laughs> and like, like in, in no uncertain terms. Um, and, and that um, to rebel against the market order is to rebel against the divine will. And this idea um, is more and more obscured as we get closer to our time. But the fundamentals of the argument are the same, which, and this is very much what motivates the ideas of the Austrian school. Like many of the Austrian school members were, you know, atheists and so on, but like, or, or agnostics, like they were not like intensely religious, but this idea that, you know, there is the mysterious invisible, like dispensation because in in the in the the historiography that the, the the Austrian school provides they basically say that there was the past where everything was an error and then we had the bourgeois order which was essentially like some kind of like lovecraftian discovery of the truth from beyond right like that that somehow the bourgeoisie like in their attempts with social organization hit upon something that was like fundamentally metaphysically true in as to like what the, the, the best form of society is. And then everything since then has been a erroneous deviation from the one true social form. Um, and so, you know, like, yeah, it's kind of like you take, uh, you take the, the, the Catholic God and you replace it with some kind of like, you know, mysterious, uh, Lovecraftian monstrosity who is, uh, handed down, has like, you know, reached out from the cosmos to, uh, to give us this one true social organization. Right. But either way, it's like, this is just like metaphysically written into the structure of the universe. And, and, and to rebel against it is just rebelling against nature itself. But, you know, we look at reality and we can see, like, as they say, the volume of transactions within firms is larger than the transactions between firms by a significant margin. There is way more planning than there is market activity. And, um, you know, I, I, I bet, like, I, it's, it's certainly the case that, that many Austrians would acknowledge that fact and they would say, well... Uh, I mean, that may be the case. Uh, however, that's just a, this just an example of how much crony capitalism is running everything and how much we need to just get back to, like, you know, the one true way of market activity. Um, but, 
I don't think you should pay any attention to those those kinds of arguments. Don't don't believe them. Don't fucking listen. Just block your ears and walk away. <laughs> it's not worth listening to. <laughs> um, yeah, because because the fundamental mistake, the fundamental problem with the Austrian school is that they cannot reconcile how markets require state activity in order to be coherent in any way. And, you know, like, this is a point they bring up in the book, and it's an excellent point, and it's kind of just, that's the end of the story as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Um... Yeah, we, we get a little, yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, just don't, don't listen to these fucking people. Um, we, uh, we move on a little bit then to, like, um, getting a bit of a touchback onto the calculation debate with um, Oscar Lange. And uh, we, we, we came across him, I think, in Markets in the Name of Socialism uh, a while ago. One of the sort of advancements here is this notion of, like, the, the isomorphism between planning and markets and, like, the notion that you could calculate this stuff on paper, uh, you know, you could calculate out all the prices on paper and use that as the, the means of planning. And we start to sense this, this gesture towards, like, with enough compute power, this would actually become tractable. Um, yes. It's the specific response to Mises, right? Like, Mises says, you can't calculate. Well, Longa says, no, no. Like, if we take these ideas from neoclassical econ, we could actually do this. And then we get this answer from Hayek as well about, like, um, the sort of emergence of information through markets, right? That... Um, that, like, one of the kind of fl- flawed assumptions really here is that, well, I mean, what he thinks is a flawed assumption is that, well, you're assuming that you can get the information, right, to run the calculations. But it, for, for Hayek, like, markets create that information. They, they don't just process information, they create it. So, like, where are you going to get the information from in the first place, right, to do your planning? And also, like, if, if you're doing the planning, then you're not going to have the emergent information, um, uh, at hand either um, and this rhymes with a general sort of breakdown in the sort of uh, the, these assumptions of, of of economics right this assumption of like perfectly rational actors the assumption of um, perfect information and all this sort of stuff and we get this kind of like realization um, that you know like in a lot of cases or in, in most in all cases we don't really have access to perfect information right like if you're at a car dealership and you're going to buy a used car it would cost more than the price of the car to get it fully evaluated, like to get it completely stripped down and evaluated to see whether it's a dud or not. So you're, you have to operate with this like inf- information asymmetry and just sort of go with it, which uh, you know brings up the, the wonderful sort of question of what if the entire economy is like a car dealership, which is to say, what if the entire economy is a con? You know, <laughs> just a fucking massive confidence game. Uh, which it is, <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is a fucking massive con. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sorry. Oh, yeah. And, and, and um, yeah, this, this, this question of information uh, becomes very important for sort of like neoclassicals. Um, and, and, the, and they start to kind of go off and, and tinker with that idea of, uh, of, holding in their minds the perfection of the ideal market and then looking at our fallen reality and trying to come up with ideas for how to reconcile our fallen world to the true perfect world of the neoclassical market model. Um, And that's generally the way in which um, sort of mainstream econ proceeded for most of the 20th century. Yeah, totally. There's a, there's a, I think there's a really nice kind of uh, 
bit here later on where they're kind of tying the tying back the power and coercion um, threads together that like you know so, some of these economists like Coase they, they they thought that like oh well the reason the reason these companies are planned internally is because they, they want to cut down on costs right that like it's um, it's just cheaper because markets introduce uh, frictions but um, we get our old boy Marx right who's uh, who who sees the same thing but sees it as being the planning of exploitation yes that's why the planning is done right that like to extract surplus value and this is where the mask slips right like the, the mask falls off and the the bullshit is is, is scraped away and the truth is revealed right that this is like the, these islands of tyranny plan exploitation they plan the extraction of surplus value and that like if, if you want to efficient like again right our profit imperative right you are it, it is imperative that you like operate efficiently to get this profit and that that efficiency requires the planning and discipline of the extraction process um so they're like fucking you know slam the book closed <laughs> it's uh it's everything you want to know about these islands of tyranny, right? Yeah, that's right. Like, you know, that's why um, it was so important to reject the labor theory of value and, um, you know, basically come up with sort of elaborate economic justifications for why exploitation doesn't exist. Just mad shit um, entirely, yeah. Completely crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the, the history of this stuff is such a fucking clown show. Like it is, it is ridiculous that this is this this stuff could stick at all because it, it's just on its face absurd. <laughs> like, oh damn. Yeah, yeah. It, it 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 seems to me that like what you see with a lot of this history is that you have these rather absurd theses that the right comes up with in response to um, the socialist project. And when the socialist project fails, as it so often does, um, people go to these right-wing justifications to rationalize what happened. And they come up with very muddle-headed understandings of what happened. Um, and, and I, I feel like that's, that's really the case with like, cause the, the thing with the, the socialist calculation debate is that it kind of ends inconclusively with the, uh, end of the second world war. People just kind of drop the subject. Um, because, you know, like the cold war comes in, you can't really have open discussion about anything. And then people just kind of get on to their business. Um, of trying to trying to get their careers going and, and survive and and uh, all that sort of thing, um, and then when the Soviet Union collapses, you get those arguments from the socialist calculation debate revived as like, well, now we can make sense of what happened because we have a theory, right? But the theory just does not really have much explanatory value when you look at the actual reality around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, this this chapter wraps up then with um, uh, again the sort of refrain that like these these islands of tyranny do con- contain the sort of seeds of a possible better future, but like you'd have to scrape off the tyranny and like harvest uh, harness this potential in a in an actually democratic sort of way. Chapter four then brings us on to uh, chapter four is called mapping the Amazon, and we're we're going to talk about Amazon. Um, one of the, like, I mean, we're all familiar with Amazon, right? It's this fucking gigantic uh, pl- uh, sort of, um, what, what is the way it's put here? A vast networked intelligent engine for sating consumer desire. Like, so it's this colossal infrastructure for distributing goods. Um, the sort of thing we're going to dwell on here, though, is that, like, they are, 
how it, tie, how it ties in with this calculation debate, right? That like they're again riffing on this theme of like, oh well, you know, planning planning works on paper but doesn't work in practice. But like Amazon is using. Uh, you know, huge amounts of data and novel computing solutions to solve these problems in a way that's tractable, right? Like, so we're talking about these like optimization problems, like um, that are often regarded as being like unsolvable in the perfect case. But if you make some approximations and you're kind of clever about your data, they're tractable, right? That like um, this is this is shifting away from the whole notion of like perfect information, perfectly rational actors, perfect solutions into good enough solutions. And the thing is that these good enough solutions vastly outperform uh, markets, right? Like just, ju they completely blow markets out of the water. Even, even like middling solutions to these problems completely outperform markets. Um, it's remarkable. One of the concrete things here though, is that like, and this one, I think that concretely kind of proves Hayek wrong, is this, the, the way their recommendation system works. Um, with this, like, what they call item-to-item -item collaborative filtering, which is to say that, like, the recommendation engine isn't driven by, like, uh, you know, assigning items to categories and, like, linking up the, like, creating a representational model of the linkages between items. The recommendations are emergent from, like, actual purchase behavior. So the system doesn't know the relationship between a bicycle and a puncture repair kit. The connection is inferred dynamically. And this, 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 this fucking blows Hayek out of the water, right? That, like, you can, like, have a non-market way of creating this massive information repository about needs and desires and, and the satisfactions thereof, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a practical rejoinder to Hayek's theoretical point, right? It's, you know, Hayek has this kind of epistemological point about why socialism can't work. But then you actually look at the reality of this recommendation system, and it is very much doing the sort of uh, information production that uh, Hayek attributes to the market. And, you know, this really dovetails with our discussion of platform capitalism, too, right? Like that discussion of data and the discussion of the working of data, like all of that stuff is information production in a way that uh, offers a meaningful response to uh, Hayek's sort of like claim of exclusive, uh, an exclusivity of the market's capacity to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. It, it really is. And it's, it's, it's almost as if he might have been some sort of, you know, right-wing shill that had a very particular interest in, in preserving this, the market status quo, right? Um, almost like he might have been biased, you know? Um, well, his, I mean, I, I don't want to get on a huge diversion, but his biography is pretty interesting because he was a socialist until he met Mises, and then Mises just kind of warped his brain. Um, <laughs> nice. Like, as, as Mises was wont to do, you know, he's, he was a, a very uh, determined uh, uh, arguer of his points, and, uh, and, and actually Austrian school people often view Hayek as like a kind of um, heretic. Uh, because he's not he's not close enough to the truth of Mises. Mm. Um, oh, these people are yeah, nuts. It's it's, uh, it, it's 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 pretty interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we we get a bit of a, we get a pretty decent section here as well, acknowledging the sort of wor woeful working conditions and in, in warehouses and such, and also kind of like touching on 
you know, again, if we're, if we're repurposing this technology and like repurposing this stuff and we're going to transform the technical code that guides it, there are these risks, right? Particularly like the risk of um, that this, this, this sort of omnipotent kind of surveillance infrastructure could be used for, for uh, repression. Um, and like, you know, it's, it's good that, you know, the, the authors do touch on this stuff. Like they're not completely Pollyanna about this. It's just like, you know, like there, there are risks to this stuff and it's, that's kind of to, to riff back on, on, on Stafford beer, right? Like, and his thing of like, this is why you lean in. This is why you engage in science because yes, the, the scissors are sharp, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't use the scissors, right? Like it means you have to be fucking smart about how you use them and, and do so in a deliberate way rather than a, a crazy sort of stochastic market-based way. Um, would you would you trust a market solution for scissors in your fingers? I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> right, like stochastic processes aren't fucking good at this stuff. Um, the uh, the the final chapter that we'll be dealing with in this episode is chapter five: index funds as the sleeper agents of planning. Um, which is interesting, right? The the kind of the the, the gloss of the argument here is that. Uh, the financial system is a planner, right? Like, um, and it abstracts over the differences between particular firms so that, you know, if somebody is investing in a particular airline, they want that airline to succeed. But if they're investing in airlines in general through this index fund, they kind of don't give a shit about the competition. Like, it's just, it's sort of like, if you zoom out far enough and you kind of look at this thing, it's like a sort of planning system that adjusts the ratios of investment between between sectors, um, which has this seed of potential for uh, for communist planning. Yeah, the, the argument there is sort of like the central banks direct the overall planning effort of the capitalist system, and the large index funds are like the second level of that planning effort. And this this sort of argument can be overcooked a little bit and go into a sort of realm of like, oh well, actually, a competition doesn't exist. But like, no, like. It's like a dogfight in which you own both of the dogs, right? Like, you, there's a sort of comical kind of uh, unification of the ownership, yes, but the violence is still very real. Like, uh, uh, on, on, like, all of those airlines are actually still competing with each other. But yes, there is this abstractive layer that, like, kind of nullifies some of the effects of the competition and sort of unifies uh, sectors. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's sort of um, what ends up happening is that rather than having particular capitalists um, directing firms and being in con uh, conflict with each other, um, you have sort of like a general class dictatorship over the sector. And it's very incestuous, right? That they're, they're, all, they're all on each other's boards. Yes, they're, they're, there's so much, uh, you know, um, cross-participation of boards of directors uh, within sectors and across sectors. And that does make a certain amount of sense, given that um, people are getting paid out of index funds, um, which have a very general representation of the capitalist class interest. But the fact remains that they represent the capitalist class interest, <laughs> yeah. which is to extract surplus value. And what competition, at least I think, is, is doing there is... You kind of pit one firm against another in order to um, accelerate the race to the bottom, right? To, to to just to just you know exploit as much as possible. It's kind of like a um, it's like an it's like a forced evolution, right? Where the competition is the fitness function. Yes, it's like how we train an AI. Yeah, and and 
you know, it, 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 it's the competition still provides a useful alibi when the managers go and will have to talk about hard decisions to the workers, right? Like, oh, well, the competition, you know, uh, those guys over there, well, they, they, they don't, uh, you know, let you go to the bathroom when you're working. So I, I guess you were just not going to have to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Um, like, yeah. So, um, yeah, again, this, this team, right, that like there's, there's the potentials for a very different future here, but it is currently arrested and tied up in this, um, this, uh, this class system and the reproduction of that class system. Uh, which uh, massively sucks and isn't good. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, one one interesting thing here is that uh, this idea of sort of like um, aggregation by the financial sector originally was was come up with by a guy called Hilferding, and Hilferding was also an Austrian. So I think pretty much everybody we've talked about today <laughs> comes from Austria and was also active in the same period of time. Do they have a lot of lead piping over there? <laughs> What's going on with Austria? Well, you know, people people call the interwar Vieta like a laboratory for the apocalypse. <laughs> and um, like I, 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 I really like it's it's really shocking the degree to which the modern world was imagined in that period of time in one city um it it is just it is really stunning i mean i could get into the reasons why but i'm not going to do that now because we got to move on (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah we're going to be wrapping up soon for this one but um yeah yeah, before we do there's this this nice section at the end as well about like um like the innovation um and how the state is actually responsible for more innovation than the market is um and we're basically talking about like big like blue sky stuff here like uh, high-tech medicine and like infrastructure um, and that, like, you know, like, in, in recent memory, like, war planning really sort of proved out that, like, uh, if you want to innovate on a really fucking short time scale, you gotta, you gotta do this, this, uh, this planned economy stuff. Um, and even then, but, like, after the war, you still had this, like, state and corporate collaboration, mostly in defense, but also for, like, for other sectors as well. Um, and, like, ultimately... All of the tech that sort of runs your smartphone or whatever, like that sort of thing that the, the market dipshits usually love to hold up as this like, ooh, look at the wonders of the market. All of that shit, like the, um, the, the computing technology, all of the fucking network infrastructure, all of the, uh, you know, the HCP and stuff like that, uh, operating systems research, all of it basically is from state funding. Like none of, yeah, none of it really we, we, is, we, is private. We, we kind of talked about this in the, the Californian ideology episode, right? Yeah, it's um, yeah. Again, it's suspicious how much this thing rhymes with our our project, right? <laughs> <laughs> if if I didn't know yeah, that this just, was, you could just sort of cross reference uh, <laughs> bibliography. Yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, uh, but the the I think the one really interesting uh, example of that like war planning there is the case of like penicillin, right? Like, yeah, because like. When you hear about penicillin, you often hear about how its creator uh, refused to patent it, right? Because he, he believed that, like, you know, like medicine is, is, is basically a shared heritage of humanity and it's unprincipled to profit off of a medical invention. Um, and then you kind of just hear, well, and then they just sort of made it anyway and blah, blah, blah. And now, now, we, now we have vaccines, right? Um, well, the, the real story there, they kind of get into in this chapter and then they, they describe like how much difficulty there was about coercing capitalists 
to produce this desperately necessary medicine because you know basically if you got a bacterial infection and there were there was no treatment there were no antibiotics it, it could be just a minor wound you received in war and you would be dead and so the, the utility of this medicine for the war effort was completely obvious um, but it required just like an enormous amount of state coercion within the United States um, to actually make the thing happen. So that's the part of the story that's usually left out when it's described, you know, how we got penicillin, um, how we got antibiotics. Yeah. And I think like they, they, they quote as well from like the sort of reports back from the, the firms that were approached initially and they, they, they really shop it around, but they were like, oh, you know, this, this stuff's really hard to make and you got to keep the light bulbs at this exact temperature and like, you know, just like these, these sort of like, you know, uh, capitalist sort of just like sulking about how difficult the innovation was or whatever, like... In, in, these 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 work shy fucking skyvers that like of of, of capitalism right like they're like uh, but it's it's a lot of work to actually research it and make to scale up production and it it basically took the government putting a fucking gun to their heads and saying you're going to scale up production on this stuff um to to make it actually happen yeah and also planning it right like like collaborate like plan co- uh, cooperation and collaboration between these firms mm-hmm. yeah but like it, it's remarkable that like it that all had to be planned and it had to be fucking forced through, right? Like the this this notion of like the market as this dynamic force that'll like like just completely oh, you know, pump out innovations night and day. It's like it's really not the case. Like it's these Yeah, and you know, just to respond to like the Austrians' point, it's like where were the price signals that indicated the necessity for a good that had not even been produced yet? <laughs> like, how did the market, or how was the market ever going to get you penicillin to fight the Second World War? Yeah. It just wasn't. Oh, boy. Yep. <laughs> Fuck those guys. Oh, god damn. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's where we're going to leave it for this episode. Um, it's, uh, this is a, this is a fucking great book. Like, I, I, I like, I, I know we end up recommending pretty much everything we read, but this, this really is one that I think is going to be valuable ammunition for, um, for socialists in the in the decades to come, like you, you really do need to get just get the book and read it and become familiar with all the stuff in it, and then just like mercilessly shoot down every fucking libertarian argument you can you can come across. Like just just quote this thing at length. It is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 excellent ammunition for the struggle. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we'll be back in two weeks with the the back half of the book. Um, thanks, listeners, for coming along with us. And uh, if you'd like to follow us on the internet, we're at, on Twitter at GIUnitPod. We're on Facebook as General Intellect Unit. Um, we have our website, GeneralIntellectUnit.net. Uh, we're on all the podcast apps, so, you know, do the whole like, rate, subscribe thing. Or uh, share us around with your friends. It's probably the best way to help the show. And the second best way to help the show is to go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and throw us a couple of bucks a month um, to help with, uh, you know, the price of books and the price of three pre-orders for books. <laughs> and uh, the price of shipping out the fucking, the, the prizes, all that kind of stuff. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, thanks for listening. We'll catch you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.